The Old Testament reading today is Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. The New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and that will be our sermon text for today. So Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17, and 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here the apostle instructs his co-worker Timothy saying, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. One of the reasons I chose to preach through 1 Timothy 
was so that we might be encouraged as a congregation to keep our focus upon Christ, the advancement of His kingdom, and the building up of His church in these politically turbulent times. Now granted, all of Scripture does point to Christ and the furtherance of His kingdom. But 1 Timothy has a lot to say about life in Christ's church. And I think it is good that this be our focus. As Christians, we are citizens of an earthly nation. We live under the Noahic Covenant, and so we are obligated to participate in the common but accountable political communities that covenant sanctions. And this topic has been our focus in Sunday School over the past couple of months. There we have learned a lot about our responsibilities in the civil realm. There you have been encouraged to be responsible citizens. But as citizens, as Christians rather, we are also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you are in Christ, you live under the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. And where is this new covenant community found? Where is this new covenant community found? Well, many of its members have already gone to glory and are even now enjoying the blessed presence of God. Their bodies lie in the grave, but their souls have been perfected and are alive in the presence of God. These saints who have gone to glory are assembled in heaven. Our brother Stephen Haas is among them. Do you remember Stephen, brothers and sisters? He's there. Our brother John TZA is among them, along with many others. But there are also many partakers of this new covenant who are alive on earth today. These are those who have been drawn to faith in Christ. These have turned from their sins to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. These have been justified, adopted, and are being now sanctified by the Word of God and His Spirit. And where do these members of the New Covenant who are alive in the world today assemble? Where are they found? Well, they assemble in God's house. They, that is to say, they assemble in the church. They, they sit at the Lord's table. They gather together on the Lord's day to feast on Christ and on His Word. They come to offer up prayers and praise to God with the intent to obey him in the whole of life. They come to fellowship with one another, and in so doing, they gain a small foretaste of the blessed life that is to come. In fact, the scriptures remind us that the assembly of God's redeemed in heaven and the assembly of God's redeemed on earth are synchronized in their worship even now. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. He speaks to Christians who are alive on earth, saying, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So where do those who are partakers of the covenant of grace assemble? The answer is that whether on earth or in heaven... They assemble before the throne of God, being united to Christ by faith. We must let this truth sink in, brothers and sisters. We assemble before the throne of God. Believe it sincerely so that it brings peace to your soul. It ought to bring peace to your soul at all times, but especially in turbulent times. You are citizens, even now, of the kingdom of heaven, if you have faith in Christ. So do you see then that the Christian has dual citizenship. We are simultaneously citizens of an earthly nation and of Christ's heavenly kingdom. 
God is the sovereign king of both. He reigns over both of, his, of these realms through his risen son, all things having been made subject to him. But he reigns over these realms differently. And though he has a special kind of love and concern for his redeemed, those who are citizens in his heavenly and eternal kingdom, we must remember that we are citizens of both kingdoms. Brethren, while I do not wish to in any way diminish the importance of our political engagement, this morning I do desire to fix your minds upon the far greater task of building Christ's church and furthering his heavenly and eternal kingdom on earth. To put it differently, Christians must engage in both realms. They must continuously seek the good of the city and the nation in which we live and also the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. But one of these tasks is more important than the other. Neither should be neglected. And some Christians may be called to engage in politics or in Christian ministry more than others, but even the Christian politician must confess that his work in the political realm is subordinate to the work of Christ's kingdom. How so, you ask? How is this so? Well, while it is true that life in these two kingdoms is always deeply intertwined and interrelated, the political communities in which we live exist to preserve life in this world. And we might ask, why is life on this earth being preserved? Why is it being preserved? And if you know about that covenant that God transacted with all of creation through Noah, of which the rainbow is a sign, you know that God promised that seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And why did He promise this? Why did He promise to preserve the world and to not extinguish it immediately? The scriptures are clear. He promised to preserve the natural order so that the human race might be preserved. And the human race is preserved so that God might accomplish His purposes of redemption through the covenant of grace. Stated in another way, God in His mercy has determined to preserve the human race. This includes the preservation of stability within our political communities, generally speaking. But the ultimate reason for the preservation of the human race is so that the salvation of God's elect might be accomplished and applied. Indeed, we know that salvation has been accomplished. The Christ was born. He lived, died, and rose again for himself and others. And indeed, this redemption is being applied to God's elect just as it has been from the first utterance of the gospel in the presence of our first parents, Adam and Eve. The world remains. That is to say, the full and final judgment of God has been delayed so that redemption may be accomplished by Christ and applied to all of God's elect. This is precisely what Peter taught in 2 Peter 3. And I want you to listen carefully to his words. Notice his allusion to the flood and his teaching concerning God's preservation of the natural world from Noah's day to the present for the purpose of the accomplishment and application of redemption. He writes in 2 Peter 3 saying, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your Sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What are they scoffing about? They're saying, you keep talking about the return of, of Christ. Where is he? He's never going to come. But then Peter continues saying, for they deliberately overlook this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Did you hear that? Peter is saying, what, is, what are we to make of this delay? What are we to make of this time uh, that has transpired after the floodwaters receded? And, and, and where is Christ? Why the delay? He's patient. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I continue, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So according to Peter, the return of Christ and the final judgment is delayed, not because God is slack or slow, but so that all should reach repentance. What is the point I am making? Well, in brief, it is this. Political issues matter, brothers and sisters. They matter because they pertain to our life in this world. And clearly, God is concerned with life in this world. He has promised to preserve the human race until Christ returns. And one of the ways that he preserves the human race is by the preservation of political stability in which governmental powers play a significant part. Political issues do matter. They matter to God and they should matter to us. But never can the Christian lose sight of the bigger picture. God has promised to preserve the world under the Noahic covenant so that his redemptive purposes might be fulfilled. And this is why I have said that political concerns must always remain subordinate to kingdom concerns for the Christian. Both concerns are valid, but the Christian must keep the furtherance of Christ's kingdom, which is accomplished through the preaching of the gospel, by applying baptism to those who repent and believe, and by teaching those who believe to obey all that Christ has commanded. We must keep this as our leading concern. This is our mission, brothers and sisters. The church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is our mission. It is not our only concern. But it is our primary concern, and it must remain as such. This is really all about perspective and priorities then. Tell me, friends, what is a husband and father to devote himself to? What is he to devote his life to as a husband and father? I hope you would say his life is to be devoted to loving his wife and children and to raise the children up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. That is his mission. So is that all that he has to do then, I ask you? Is he to spend every waking hour with his wife and children and focus all of his energies only on them? You know that life in this world does not work this way. Life is complex. The husband and father must go to work. He must maintain the home. He must mow the lawn, pay the bills, serve within the church, engage socially, along with many other things. But as he engages in these other responsibilities... He must constantly keep everything in perspective and maintain his priorities. He would be irresponsible to neglect work and the other duties of life, but he would err greatly if he allowed work or social life to take priority over loving and leading his wife and children. It is about perspective and priorities, and so it is for the Christian sojourner. Life is complex, isn't it? We have many responsibilities, but why are we here? Why are we here? 
The answer? To give glory to God and to further His kingdom. That is why we are here. And so I wonder, do you see how keeping this big picture in mind helps us to keep politics in perspective? Should the Christian care about politics? The answer is yes. For God is preserving humanity by maintaining stability even in this realm. But should the Christian view political matters as ultimate? The answer is no. For according to the scriptures, the preservation of the natural world and the human race is serving a greater end, namely the accomplishment of salvation and the application of it to God's elect, which is the furtherance of God's kingdom, which will come to a culmination in the new heavens and earth which Christ has earned on the last day. Stated even more simply, politics matters, but the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and the building up of Christ's church matters more. This is the mission of the church under which the other responsibilities of life are subordinate. One thing that has been on my mind lately is this question. How will the church in this land not only survive, but thrive as the culture grows ever more hostile to the Christian faith? This has been on my mind. It's probably been on your mind too. I'm sure you have noticed the hostility It's not directed at Christians only, but towards others who hold a belief in God and the idea that morality is rooted in Him. And the hostility in our culture is not coming from our neighbors primarily. Instead, it is concentrated in institutions of power, the universities, the press, large and powerful corporations, and in the elite celebrity class. There are indeed some hostilities present within the broader society. Will it continue to trickle down to our neighbors. Only God knows. Only God knows the answer to that question. But the question that I am asking is this. How will the church thrive if our culture remains on this path? The answer is rather simple, I think. I say that it is simple. I do not mean that it is easy. The church will thrive in a culture that is hostile to her in the same way that she will thrive when she holds an honored and privileged place within society. And that is by being faithful to Christ and His Word. And this is my charge to you this morning, brothers and sisters. As sojourners, we are to maintain a heavenly and eternal perspective. We are to keep our mission always in mind. And we are to be faithful to Christ and His Word. We are to be faithful in our own souls. We are to be faithful in the home. We are to be faithful in public And we are to be faithful within Christ's church. The church will thrive if she is faithful. The church will certainly wither if she is compromising. Compromising churches will seem to be alive for a time. This is especially true when the culture is relatively kind to Christians. But compromising churches will surely wither with the passing of time, for they have separated themselves from their life source. They are like cut flowers. They may have, for a brief moment, the appearance of life and beauty, but their decay is inevitable, for they have severed from their roots. But faithful churches will thrive with the passing of time. Faithful churches are like the hardy shrubs that blanket the hills here in Southern California. They often go unnoticed, don't they? They are not as visually impressive as an elaborate bouquet of flowers, but their roots are firmly set in the soil. They thrive in the springtime rain, 
and they are resilient to drought and to the heat of summer. Brethren, let us be sure that faithfulness to Christ and His Word is our aim. Let us continue to send our roots down deep into the soil of Christ and His Word. Let us be sure to believe Him and to obey Him individually, as families and as a congregation. Let us not fear times of drought nor the heat of summer leading us to compromise. No, the very worst thing that we could do is compromise in faith and in practice. For then we would be severed from the root. But remaining faithful, we must rest assured that God has designed His church to thrive not only in the springtime rain, but also the heat of summer. The church and every member within her is well equipped to thrive in every condition. I know this was a very long introduction. Very long introduction. You say, when are we going to get to 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications for overseers? Very soon. We will come to it soon. But I wished to set this sermon and, in fact, this entire sermon series against that backdrop. Faithfulness is what we are after, brothers and sisters. What is God's will for the church? Well, once we know, we must be faithful. The answer is simple. I am not saying that it is easy, but it is simple. We must be faithful. This must be our aim. And what have we learned so far in 1 Timothy? In brief, the church must be faithful in doctrine. She must be faithful in holiness. She must be faithful in prayer. And the text that is before us today makes it clear that one of the most important things that a church will do is appoint men to the office of overseer. Stated negatively, one of the most damaging things a church can do is to appoint men who are not called or qualified to the office of overseer. In brief, if the church is to be faithful, then she must have faithful men who are leading her. Our text for today does begin with what Paul calls a trustworthy saying. And so this must have been a saying that was adopted by the early church. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, Paul says. This is the trustworthy saying. To aspire to something is to seek to attain it or to long for something eagerly. Noble here does not mean glorious, but rather good, fine, and praiseworthy. And it is important to notice that the office of overseer is called a task, that is to say, It is a work. I appreciate the Apostle's description of it. It is not that men should aspire to hold a noble and glorious position of ease, but rather, if they aspire to the office of overseer, they they do desire a good and fine and praiseworthy work. It is a service. You will notice that Paul does not rebuke men for aspiring to the office of overseer as if they were being selfishly ambitious But he does remind Timothy, and through him the church, that overseers must engage in good, fine, and praiseworthy work. Undoubtedly, there are some who are selfishly ambitious to hold the office of overseer within Christ's church. We must be aware of this. These wish to have the notoriety and respect that comes with the position. But Paul does not assume that all who aspire to the office are of the Spirit. Instead, he simply reminds us that overseers must engage in noble work. So what is the office of overseer? Well, it is no different from the office of pastor or elder. So when you hear overseer, think pastor or elder. This one office 
The office of elder, we might say, goes by many names. Each name highlights a different aspect of what the office requires. The term elder brings to mind authority. The term pastor brings to mind care of a congregation. And the term overseer or bishop connotes general leadership and oversight. I think if you were to read Acts 20, verse 17, you would see that this same office goes by many names. There the Apostle Paul is meeting with the elders of the church of Ephesus. And as they met, he spoke to them saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is what you must do as elders. Look out after yourselves and pay attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And so elders are also called overseers, and these have the responsibility to look out for and lead the church of God. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You will notice that someone aspiring to the office of overseer does not make them qualify to hold that office. Instead, there are qualifications to be met. And if we are paying attention to the New Testament scriptures, we will agree that it is the church that must agree that the man who aspires to the office of overseer meets these qualifications. Naturally, existing elders have an important role to play in this process. The fact that Paul wrote to Timothy to see to it that these qualifications were met does confirm this. But those who aspire to the office of overseer are to be vetted by the congregation. The congregation must agree that the man is called and fit for the office. And the church, with the existing elders at the lead, is to lay hands on the man to set him apart for the work with fasting and prayer, as Acts chapter 13 describes. So what are the qualifications? There are many listed here, but they fall into two categories. First, the man must exhibit personal self-discipline and maturity, In other words, he must be morally upright. And secondly, he must have the ability to relate to others and to care for them and to teach them. In other words, he must be gifted for the work. These personal and interpersonal qualifications are are not grouped together, but they are intertwined in this text. But we will consider them according to these classifications. First of all, let us consider the moral qualifications. An overseer must be morally upright, is the point. In verse 2 we read, Therefore, and the word therefore is significant, because overseers must do noble work, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This means that he must be above criticism. Now, of course, the apostle, the apostle has reason, reasonable and valid criticism in mind. An overseer or an aspiring overseer, if he comes under criticism from someone in the church or outside the church, that does not mean that he is disqualified. If that were the case, then neither Paul himself nor Jesus would be qualified to hold the office. For these men were often criticized by others. So clearly Paul means that the man must be above reproach that is valid. No one should be able to look upon the man and say, in truth, his life is marked by sin. He is a hypocrite. This requirement to be above reproach functions as a heading for the other moral requirements that are listed here. He is to be above reproach, generally speaking. In particular, we learn that he is to be the husband of one wife. Let me first tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that an overseer must be married. Paul was not married. Jesus never married. 
But if the man is married, he is to be the husband of one wife. Furthermore, this does not mean that a man is disqualified from holding office if he has had more than one wife in his lifetime. If a man has remarried after the death of his previous wife, then he may hold this office. And if a man has remarried after a valid divorce, he may hold this office. But in this case, the church would be very wise to look carefully into the circumstances of that divorce to be sure that it was valid according to the scriptures so that the man may be truly above reproach. So what then does it mean for him to be the husband of one wife? First, it means that the overseer is to be a man and not a woman. But that was already made clear in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Secondly, it means that if the man is married, he must be faithful to his wife. That is the simple requirement. He must be faithful to his wife. He must be a one-woman man. This is, of course, the standard for all Christian husbands, but it is absolutely required to hold the office of overseer. The man must be faithful to his wife and thus above reproach. Thirdly, the man is to be sober-minded. Now, when we compare English translations of the Bible, it is clear that the translators, they struggle a bit to capture the meaning of this Greek word with only one English word. Some say temperate, some say vigilant, meaning watchful. The ESV says sober-minded. When we put these terms together, we get the idea an overseer must be alert, clear-headed, and disciplined in his way of life. Fourthly, he must be self-controlled. And this term is similar to the previous one, but in the Greek, the word seems to suggest prudence, thoughtfulness, and sensibility. Fifthly, the man is to be respectable. This means that he must be modest, well-ordered, and moderate. He must behave in a way that is becoming of a Christian man and of a leader within Christ's church. And sometimes I do wonder if these celebrity pastors who make a name for themselves by being brash and obnoxious meet this qualification. He is to be respectable. We will leave hospitable and able to teach for the next section because I think this has to do with giftedness. But in verse 3, we find the sixth moral requirement, not a drunkard. This, like all of the moral requirements, applies to all Christians, but it is required of overseers. He must not be given to drunkenness, the NIV says. In Ephesians 5.18, we remember these words of the apostle, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is true for all of us, brothers and sisters, but it is required for those to hold, who hold the office of overseer. Seventhly, he must not be violent. Violent here refers to one who is pugnacious and demanding, a bully, we might say, as overused as that word is today. This applies not only to physical violence, but also relational violence. He must not be combative, aggressive, contentious. That is the idea. Eighthly, let us take gentle and not quarrelsome together. Instead of being combative, aggressive, and contentious, an overseer must be gentle and not quarrelsome. That is to say, he must be gentle and peaceful. Some, I am afraid, take this string of requirements that we have just mentioned, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, to mean that a pastor must never be firm, always gentle in the sense of non-confrontational. 
But that is, of course, ridiculous. In fact, it is because pastors will sometimes need to rebuke false teachers and sinners that they must not be violent nor quarrelsome, but gentle. It is because that this is a part of the work that they must have these characteristics of self-control. If the man is sober-minded, self-controlled, not violent or quarrelsome, but gentle, he will be able to deliver a firm rebuke when it is needed without losing his temper. To say it differently, the man must not be driven by his passions, but must be self-controlled. In fact, there is a parallel passage to 1 Timothy 3 found in Titus 1. There Paul lists qualifications for elders to his co-worker Titus. The list that you will find there is very similar. It's not the same, but similar. In Titus 1.7 we read, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So a similar list of qualifications are mentioned there. He must not be quick-tempered, though, is what Paul says to Titus. But listen to what Paul says just a few verses down in Titus 1.3. He, in fact, commands Titus to rebuke false teachers sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The meaning is this. An overseer cannot be violent, quarrelsome, or quick-tempered. Instead, he must be gentle. And this is so that he might deliver a firm rebuke when needed, not being driven by passionate anger, but with affectionate love. All Christians should have these qualities, brothers and sisters. Do you see the theme? All Christians should have these qualities, but they are required of overseers. Ninthly, the man is to not be a lover of money. Money is not evil. Money is good. It is needed to survive. And overseers are not commanded to care nothing about money. The Proverbs call that foolish. Instead, he must not be a lover of money. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and are pierced, have pierced themselves through with many pains. That is 1 Timothy 6.10. Hebrews 13.5 warns us, saying, Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as you know, there is money to be made in religion. And some do seek positions of authority in the church to capitalize. And this is why Peter instructs elders, saying, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. He must not be a lover of money, Paul says. Tenthly, an overseer must be humble. In verse 6, we read these words, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the temptation of the devil. Recent converts are prone to pride, especially if promoted to positions of leadership prematurely. Let a man demonstrate that he is mature and humble. And we know that life experiences are humbling. Education is even humbling. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Pride, brothers and sisters, is destructive. It was pride that caused the devil himself to fall and to be condemned. And it was pride that led to Adam's fall. 
pride will lead to our fall as well. Here, Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18:12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And so then you see that men must be morally fit to hold the office of overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, whichever term you prefer. And I'm afraid that churches are often tempted to overlook character flaws for the sake of having a man who is gifted in leadership, gifted when it comes to teaching, perhaps. What will bring people in to our church, they ask. Answer, among other things, a gifted preacher and a charismatic leader. That is what we need. A gifted preacher and a charismatic leader. And it is true, that will bring people in the doors. But if the man is not morally upright, the end will be disastrous. How many scandals do we need to hear about within the evangelical church? Before we learn this lesson, stories of of ministers who are financially corrupt, sexually immoral, compromising, deceitful, and abusive, we hear these stories all the time. How many of these stories do we need to learn to hear of before we learn this lesson. The church is greatly harmed by these immoral leaders, and so is the reputation of Christ. This pattern will continue, brothers and sisters, so long as we have numerical success and cultural relevance as our highest aim. Instead, as I have said before, we must seek to be faithful within Christ's church. Let us now briefly consider the gifts that are required of an overseer. And I will have you notice from the outset that eloquent preacher and charismatic leader is not on the list. It's not mentioned here. If the man is able to preach eloquently and to lead with great skill, then thanks be to God. But these are not requirements. Instead, the man must demonstrate that he is able to, one, care for God's church, and two, to teach. First, he must demonstrate that he is able to care for God's church. Look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The requirement is that the man be able to care for God's church. Just as the title overseer implies... And how will he demonstrate that he is able to do this? How will he demonstrate that he is able to do this before holding the office of overseer? Answer, he will demonstrate it in his personal life. Before he is entrusted with the management of the church, he must demonstrate to the congregation that he is able to manage his own household. The word translated as manage means to guide, to direct, to lead. And this is what all husbands and fathers must do in the home. They are called to guide, to direct, to lead their wife and children. They are to influence them, to cause them to follow a recommended course of action. And this terminology that I'm using here is drawn straight from a Greek lexicon, right? This is what it means to manage. This is what husbands and fathers are to do in the home. And before a man is appointed to the office of overseer, he must demonstrate to the congregation that he is able to do that well. If a man is struggling to manage his own household, he should not be trusted to manage the household of God. That is the point. He is to manage his own household well, notice, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The phrase, with all dignity, means that a man is to manage his household with behavior which is befitting, implying a measure of dignity leading to respect. It means propriety, befitting behavior. You can hear me quoting a Greek lexicon again here to bring out the meaning of this phrase, with all dignity. I suppose there are a couple of different ways for a father to keep his children submissive or obedient. The children of a father who is a drunkard and violent may be submissive. They may obey him, but only out of what? Fear. They may obey him, but not from the heart. And you know they will not obey for long. They will grow to resent their father and to run from him at first opportunity. But Christian fathers must manage their households and keep their children submissive with all dignity. They must lead strongly with love and gentleness. This is what Christian fathers are to do. This is what Christian husbands are to do. They are to lead strongly with love and gentleness. It is right that children fear their fathers, isn't it? I think my children fear me. They do. The words, I'm going to tell your father, has an effect upon them. It is right that children fear their father, but with the kind of fear that has deep love and respect for him at its core. And this is the kind of fear that we have for God, isn't it? Isn't this the kind of fear that we have for God? We fear him because we love and respect him. And we do know that he loves us. All Christian men must manage their households well. All are to keep their children submissive, but they are to do so with all dignity. They They are not to be abusive and harsh. They are not to be manipulative in their management of their household. They are not to treat their wife nor their children in this way. They are to keep their children submissive with all dignity. Stated differently, they are to lead as Christ leads, not by domineering over those under their care, but with love and service. Connected to this idea that men must be able to care for the church of God, we see secondly that an overseer must be hospitable. This was stated up in verse 2 of our passage. It means that he must be open to others and able to care for them. The one who is hospitable is willing to receive others into their home, to be involved in their lives, and to care for their needs. And so no, brothers and sisters, hospitality is not just throwing dinner parties. It may involve that. But to be hospitable is to truly be open to others to be open to being involved in their lives, to be willing to have them in your home and to be in theirs and to be open to devoting time and energy to other people living in other households. We must demonstrate as overseers an ability to do this. An overseer must have this capacity. Being an overseer involves more than preaching and teaching, you see. In the church, we live life together, don't we? And pastors must be willing and able to relate to others and to care for them. This does not mean that a pastor's home must be wide open, for they must maintain their own household, but their homes and their lives should be open, for being an overseer involves 
caring for others. Thirdly and lastly, an overseer must be able to teach. This also was stated in verse 2. When we come to the qualifications for deacons in the next passage, we will see that they share many things in common with the qualifications for overseers, but able to teach is not one of them. Overseers must lead the church, and one of the ways that they lead is through the teaching of God's holy word. So these are the qualifications to hold the office of overseer. A man must be morally upright and also gifted for the work. When it comes to the gifts required, we find that men will possess these, qu- these gifts to varying degrees. Some will excel in caring for the church, others in hospitality, and others in teaching. And every overseer will have room to grow in his giftedness. But each man must possess all of these gifts to some degree before he is appointed to the office. And the church must recognize that he does. And when it comes to the moral qualifications, we understand that no man is perfect. Some sins are particularly heinous and may automatically disqualify a man from holding office in Christ's church, but most sins are not automatically disqualifying. Certainly the point is that the man must be above reproach. His life is to be marked by obedience to Christ and not by sin. So how does this apply to you? How does this apply to you? And I say it applies to you in many ways. I'll mention just a few suggestions here by way of conclusion. One, all Christians, young and old, male and female, should seek to mature in Christ so that they are morally upright. All of these moral qualifications that have been stated for overseer, they apply to every Christian. Everyone should strive to to be morally upright, to be mature in Christ Jesus. But it must be the case for those who hold the office of overseer. These moral qualifications are not unique to pastors. All Christians should have them. Two, how important it is for the church to know what the qualifications for overseers are. As I have said before, to appoint a man to the office of overseer who is not fit may do great damage to the church in the long run. And so I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, do not compromise on this. Be faithful in this. And three, if you do aspire to the office of overseer, then it is imperative that you ask yourself if you meet these qualifications and that you strengthen, that you seek to strengthen whatever is lacking while you wait for the congregation to add the external call to the inward call that you sense within your heart. It is the church that must recognize these qualities within you. And I think one of the best ways to develop the gifts of an overseer is simply to relate to people, to care for them naturally, to be hospitable, and to pray for others in the corporate prayer meetings of the church. Did you hear what I just said there? I I think it is important that you come, if you have an aspiration for the office of overseer, to come and to participate in the corporate prayer meetings of the church. You must be very careful, brother, not to pray for show, but you are to pray with a sincere love for God and others. I do believe that a pastor's heart is put on display through prayer. And I will conclude now where I began. Brothers and sisters, let us be found faithful. Let us be found faithful in our own souls. Let us be found faithful in the privacy of our own homes. Let us be found faithful in society And let us be faithful within the church. The glory of God must be our aim. Faithfulness to God must be our objective. Let us maintain that eternal perspective 
and give priority to the furtherance of Christ's kingdom over all other earthly pursuits. We say, Lord, help us. To him be the glory. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that you have saved us individually, but that you have called us to sojourn in this world, not alone, but within your church. The bride of Christ, redeemed by his shed blood, what a precious thing the church is, to assemble together in Jesus' name. What a precious privilege this is. And Father, we know that you have called the church to be holy, to be a light to the darkness, to be salt to the world. Help us to be that very thing. Lord, strengthen us to remain faithful. Help us to be faithful in times of prosperity and ease. Help us to be faithful also, even if persecution should come upon us, Lord. Father, we know that if we are to do that, then we must first be faithful within our own souls. Refine us, O Lord, we pray. Increase our love for you and our love for one another. In Christ's name we say these things and all of God's people say.